Hey, Post Reports listeners. Here in Washington, D.C., at least, it's getting colder and darker. And we're working on an episode about how to avoid the winter blues. If you have a strategy to share, please send us a voice memo to postreports at washpost.com. Include your name and where you're calling from, and you might hear yourself on the show. Okay, now on to today's episode. This month, the auto industry changed forever. Through the power of our picket lines and the credible threat of even more strikes to come, we were able to wrench back so much of what these companies have stolen from us over the past few decades. We won back our dignity as auto workers. After the United Auto Workers went on strike for six weeks, they finally reached a deal with the big three automakers, GM, Ford, and Stellantis. Jean Whalen is a business reporter for The Post, and she's covered the contract negotiations for months. The United Auto Workers make up a large chunk of the auto industry in the U.S., and they've just won really big wage increases for the first time in several decades. And it's not just the wage increases. They won other benefits, too, like cost of living adjustments, larger contributions to retirement plans, and paid parental leave. To Jean, this was a long time coming. It seemed inevitable that these strikes were going to happen, given all of the factors out there in the economy. Uh, It seemed inevitable that they were going to get quite feisty and fiery, and it, it seemed inevitable that they would come to an agreement that would include large gains for the workers. We've seen a bunch of union wins this year from Hollywood to UPS. Now it's the UAW, and the ripple effects are starting to become very clear. It could very easily and and already is starting to reverberate out into even non-unionized automakers that are starting to raise workers' wages as a result. So it's, it's a really big deal. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Allison Michaels. It's Tuesday, November 28th. Today, what the end of the UAW strike says about the future of the auto industry and how their wins fit into this energetic moment for organized labor. Jean spoke with my colleague, Alahe Izabi. Jean, I want to get into how this deal all came together and how the workers got these wins. But first, can you break down for me what these new contracts give workers? All three of the companies have very similar contracts. So Hmm. they all include a wage increase of at least 25% over four and a half years. So the, the workers who were already making top wage will get a raise of more than 25% over the contract. And it will be even higher when you include cost of living adjustments that the contracts will give them to offset inflation. And then for lower paid workers, workers who had been on on a lower pay scale, they will get even larger wage increases of up to 160% over the course of this contract. Wow. The vast majority will get bumped up to over $40 an hour by the end of the contract. Another big uh, bonus that they got is that contributions to their 401k accounts will grow to about 10% 
of their wages. So the companies will contribute about 10% of their wages to their 401ks. They got more paid time off. Um, there's For the first time, the factory workers will get a couple of weeks of parental leave. Oh, wow. The contract also includes regular cost of living adjustments to wages to offset inflation. That was a perk that the union enjoyed before the Great Recession in 2008, but it was a, a perk that they gave up around the time of the, the Great Recession when the automakers were really struggling to survive. So the, the union had to give up a lot of its perks and compensation around that time. And they've clawed back a lot of that with these new contracts. I want to understand how they got these wins. So first, to start with, let's set the stage a little bit. Remind me, when did this strike start and, and why did it start? So the strike started on September 15th when the workers' former contract expired. It started after a period of several months in which the union and the companies were negotiating, but not very successfully, to try to strike a new contract. The union had put forward really big new demands this summer as they entered bargaining season. The union demanded a 40% wage increase over four years, it demanded the restoration of defined benefit pensions for all workers uh, and a number of other things, including a 32-hour work week. The companies balked initially at a lot of those demands, and that ultimately is, is what led to this strike. There was big demands on the side of the union, uh, hesitance on the automaker's part to meet those demands. And then there also was a very tight labor market where there are a lot of jobs open out there. There's quite low unemployment, and that gives workers a lot of power across many industries now to strike, which is why we're seeing so much strike activity out there. And Jean, can you tell me about who has been leading the strike over the past few months and, and what was the union leadership's tactics? Yeah, so the, the union leader is named Sean Fain. He was elected to lead the union uh, back this spring, so not very long ago, only about seven months ago. And he was not a, a super well-known guy outside of UAW circles. He had been a, a longtime leader within the union, but rose up through this election, was voted in by a pretty slim margin, and came right into these negotiations with a really like aggressive, combative approach to demanding enormous gains for workers. This is our time to take back what we're owed. Working together with the companies doesn't work for us, but standing together with your union family is what works. He had a really feisty, public persona, which was also sort of unusual for the UAW in the past. It has carried out most negotiations behind closed doors. It started negotiations every four years with the big three by having a handshake ceremony where the UAW head would shake hands with the CEOs of all the automakers. This year, nope. Union leaders doing away with that tradition as they get down to business on their high-stakes contract talks. And Fain this time said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to shake hands with the companies until we have a deal that our union members endorse. So 
that was right off the bat. He was sort of throwing down the gauntlet and saying, we're going to be more combative this time around. He had a very big social media presence. He was online often speaking to his members on Facebook Live and on YouTube, giving them updates about the talks. Good evening, UAW family. Tonight, we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to review where we're at in Big Free Bargaining, and we're going to discuss some of our possible plans for the upcoming days. He railed a lot against corporate greed and CEO pay. He wore an Eat the Rich t-shirt at one point. The billionaire class has been taking everything, and the working class has been left scraping paycheck to paycheck, just trying to survive. It's time to put an end to that class war. And rallied with Bernie Sanders at one point. The fight you are waging here is not just about decent wages and working conditions and pensions in the automobile industry. It is a fight to take on corporate greed A lot of his language is quite similar to Bernie Sanders about income inequality and the need for workers to stand up and unite and fight for better compensation. So, yeah, a much more a much more fiery approach. I mean, would you say that this approach was successful, that it actually being more combative and hardline was the reason they got these big wins? It absolutely was a big reason. It I think put the companies on notice that they were going to have to really put forward their best offers and that the union was not going to accept anything less. Uh, I think the tight labor market also really helped the workers. It's hmm. It's been several years now where employers of all kinds have had trouble hiring people. And I think everyone knew that given really low unemployment and a long period of really high inflation, I think the companies were aware going into this that they were going to have to really step up their offer to the workers in order to keep workers and keep them happy. Mm-hmm. And and the companies said as much going into these talks. Like, we recognize there's been this big period of inflation. We know that we need to pay more. But I, they weren't prepared to pay nearly as much as Fain and his members were asking for. So mm-hmm. Fain's combativeness really did help, and, and the membership's combativeness. Mm. So it's like this combination of these external factors plus this different hardline approach. And they they got these what sound like huge wins. Are there any possible repercussions to to this approach or and also these wins that could blow back on the workers? Well, you know, the companies have said all along that if you raise our costs too much, we won't be able to compete with all of those non-unionized factories out there in the U.S. So Tesla, Toyota, Honda, Hyundai, Volkswagen, Mercedes, they all have U.S. factories with ununionized workforces, and they have traditionally paid less. And they also have lower healthcare costs because the unionized workers at the big three get really good healthcare coverage uh, with very little out-of-pocket cost to the workers, and that's quite expensive for the companies as well. So the big three have said, if you raise our costs too much, we're not going to be able to compete. The other thing that did happen through the strikes was when the auto factory shut down, it forced a lot of smaller suppliers to shut down as well. So the companies that make steering wheels and rear view mirrors and seats and all of those things throughout the U.S. also had to shut down because they didn't have orders from the factories. And that meant that those 
parts suppliers were also temporarily laying off their workers. And now that the big auto factories are starting up again, those parts suppliers are going to have to start up again, too. Some of them are probably in pretty tough financial straits, however, because they don't have deep pockets. And when they go for weeks or months without any orders from the big three, that can really hit their bottom line. So a lot of analysts are saying that some of these parts suppliers may have trouble starting up again or may have lost workers who went on to find jobs elsewhere. So we'll see if there are long-term impacts on the parts suppliers from all of this. And so what about the workers who were on strike or the ones who worked at these factories? How did this strike impact them? So the workers who went on strike lost their pay and they would get $500 a week instead from the union. So for a lot of the workers who did go on strike, it was a big pay cut. And the strike lasted about six weeks. So, you know, that really was starting to bite for the workers who were on strike that whole time. Do you actually fix machinery yeah. and stuff? Okay. My colleague and I visited the strike line in Chicago and Michigan and Toledo, Ohio. And the workers said they were fired up and ready to strike as long as it takes. But they did say, you know, look, this is really pinching our ability to pay our bills. How long do you think it could go on? Uh, I, I hope this will be the last week. I can't. I can't afford another week to be off. You can't. I can't. Uh. And tell me a little bit more about that. Like well, right, right now we only get uh, our five hundred a week. Yeah. And that check ain't even came yet. So I think that everyone is relieved that they are now back at work. It wasn't the longest strike ever. In fact, it it wrapped up probably faster than a lot of uh, analysts thought it might go. Some people thought it would go in to the end of the year or possibly into 2024. So that was maybe one surprising element of it is that it did wrap up as soon as it did. I think if we were to look at this outcome, both that the gains that the workers received and also the tactics and strategies that the union used to get those gains, I think this there's a bigger question of what does this mean for the wider auto industry and other companies? Will, will we see... Um, more workers exert pressure on on their bosses and and will there be more of a willingness to to take a more competitive and hardline approach and are we already seeing indications that other companies are starting to adjust their strategies to avoid something like this Absolutely yeah I mean very soon after these deals were struck we saw several of the ununionized uh, automakers really raise pay significantly Honda, Toyota, Hyundai, they all bumped up pay by double-digit percentages, in some cases as much as 25%, which was quite clearly a response to the UAW contracts. They were attempting to satisfy their own workers to maybe try to to ward off attempts to unionize them Mm. in the future. And in the UAW has said very clearly, Sean Fain has said very clearly that his next targets for unionization are all of those ununionized automakers out there. And, uh, you know, the Elon Musk of the world that have the Teslas, you know, they want to, you know, that's, that's how billionaires get their money. They, they do it on the backs of the working class people. And, you know, they, they take the profits and, and, and other people go poor in the process of these people getting rich so they can, you know, build rockets and fly themselves into outer space or whatever the hell it is they want to do with their spare time. And, uh, you know, workers are fed up in this country. He said, we're coming for you, Toyota and Tesla. We want all of those workers to stand with us. 
And he said, look, this this pay increase that you're getting now is what we call the UAW bump. You're getting hmm. this because of the union. And imagine what, what else you could get if you were actually in the union. So the UAW is going to make a big push toward trying to unionize those factories. And and we'll see how they do. They've, they've tried in the past with not a lot of success, but we're in a, a different environment now that may be more favorable to the union. After the break, we'll talk about how this strike might change your next experience at the car dealership. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn criminal trials for one of those candidates, young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. So, Gene, I'm wondering about the impact that the strike has had on consumers and and also the outcome of the strike. During the pandemic, I kept getting emails from car dealers saying, please sell us your used car. And and all of a sudden, used cars felt like such a hot commodity, let alone new cars. And they've been really expensive. So will the strike and these contracts change anything about the market for people looking to buy a car? You're really right. The prices have soared on cars, new and used, for the past several years, and that's largely related to pandemic supply and demand issues. But prices in some cases have have risen by like 30% over the past several years. Wow. And so cars have become unaffordable for a lot of people. And when the strike started, there was some fear out there that, oh, if these factories shut down and stop producing for a really long period of time, that will mean prices could spike even more because there will be fewer cars out there on the market. That didn't really happen. The strike didn't last long enough for that to happen. And all Mm. of these factories are firing up again and starting to produce again. So I don't think we're going to see a big increase in, in car costs because of the strike. And in fact, the union has been arguing that you know, look, most if not all of these big increases in car prices happened before our strike even began. So, mm-hmm. you know, don't don't blame us for that. And that and that is that is true. So, car prices are extremely elevated at the moment. All I can say is now that the factories are up and running, um, you know, there will be normal car supply out there, and there are other factors within the supply chain that are calming down a bit and should stop car prices from soaring a lot more in the future. Gene, did you see the unions exert a kind of political power that you haven't seen in some time? What did that look like during the strike? 
The union absolutely did flex its political muscle. Very early on before the strike began, Sean Fain came out and said, we're not going to automatically endorse President Biden for his uh, re-election bid. And that was a real break from big union behavior in the past, where all unions have almost always automatically endorsed Democrats. He said, we're going to endorse whoever fights for us, and we want to see the president fight for us. And that really put the White House on the hot seat to demonstrate its support for unions. And And Biden will say he's always been very pro-union, and he was always going to fight for the auto workers regardless of that. But I think that that uh, statement from Fain really did... Um, increase the pressure on the White House to come out and demonstrate that it was supporting the workers in the strike. So President Biden even went to the picket line and marched with with some of the striking UAW workers in Michigan at one point. You heard me say many times, Wall Street didn't build the country, the middle class built the country. You built the middle class. That's a fact. So let's keep going. You deserve what you've earned, and you've earned a hell of a lot more than you're getting paid now. Thank you very much. And that was the first time a sitting president had done that. Typically, they try to remain a little bit more neutral in their Mm -hmm. language and their stance so as not to upset the, the corporations. But in this case, Biden said, I'm, I'm going to stand with the UAW workers. And I think that that, um, mm. you know, he's now he's now awaiting the UAW's endorsement out of that, which I assume will be coming, although it has not officially come yet. And should we be looking at this auto strike in the same vein as the Hollywood actors and writers strike and UPS strike? I mean, is this part of a bigger narrative right now around workers right now in this moment? And You know, also, I'm thinking about the Hollywood strikes. A lot of that had to do with technological change. Um, And I'm wondering with with the automakers, is is it similar? There are a lot of similarities across these strikes. In all of these strikes, one of the main goals was to boost up the lowest paid workers at each of these companies. And each of these strikes delivered on that aim in some way or another. At UPS, they, they threatened to strike and managed to get a good new contract where that eliminated kind of a lower second-class tier of workers who were paid less. The Hollywood actors managed through striking to get the biggest bump in minimum wages for actors in several decades. So that was a common theme across all of these strikes, was lifting up the lowest paid And also, as you said, technology has been a big theme across uh, several of these strikes. So for Hollywood actors and writers, they were worried about artificial intelligence taking their jobs down the road. They wanted protections against AI, and they they won those in their contracts. On the auto worker side, they are concerned about electric vehicles and how you know, they are generally supportive of producing electric vehicles, they, they hasten to add, but they are concerned that the shift to electric vehicles will give these automakers the chance to move factories out of unionized states down to the south and to cut pay. The union is very worried that pay at battery factories and at new electric vehicle factories will be worse and that those factories will not be uniformly unionized. And so it really tried to push in these contract talks for more security in the new EV era. It's a little complicated because the EV factories were not, and the battery factories were not directly a part of these contract negotiations. 
But the union did manage to wrestle some language in the new contract that will include workers at some of these future battery factories in the union's master Mm. agreements with these companies. And that will provide some level of protection to their wages. Gene, I wonder, stepping back and looking at what happened with these auto workers, that they went on strike, that they stood together, um, what are some of the takeaways that you have about their power? Because it feels like for many decades now that Organized labor and unions have been weakened in this country, and we could, you know, spend a whole hour talking about why that's the case. And in some ways, if, you know, I'm just reading the headlines and watching these picket lines, it, it felt like a throwback to an era where they had a lot more power. Is that is that the case? What, what would you say now looking at this conclusion uh, that th- this moment felt like to you? I think it definitely shows that workers are feeling their power again. They're starting to see, yes, if we stand together and strike, we can get big gains after a long period, you know, some say 40 years dating from the Reagan era of workers not exercising a lot of power, not striking very often, and and seeing their wages really lag as a result and seeing in many cases their their wages lag behind inflation. So I think workers are starting to realize We have a lot of power right now, a lot of it coming from the tight labor market, the fact that they can go and find another job easily somewhere else, and that gives them a lot of power to push for more with their own employers. So we'll see if this leads to a lot more organizing and a lot more gains. Union membership is still quite a bit lower than it was back in the 60s and 70s throughout the U.S. And so it's not as though we've returned to an era of really common high union membership among the workforce. But I do think that the kind of uh, vibes, for, for lack of a better word, the the, the, the vibes um, are real. <laughs> the vibes are real, that people are starting to realize while unions can get the job done, there's a lot of interest in unions among young people. And we'll see if, if some of these gains and that growing interest really translate into broader union membership and more long-term gains for unions over time. Well, thank you so much for joining us and explaining all this. You're welcome. Jean Whalen is the global business reporter for The Post. She spoke with my colleague, Olahe Izadi. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks so much for listening. Today's show was produced by Ariel Plotnik. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. Thanks to Eliza Dennis and Jennifer Liberto. You've been hearing a lot about Washington Post subscriptions from us lately because ad-free audio is now available for all Washington Post subscribers in Apple Podcasts. But here's another reason to subscribe. It's our biggest sale of the year. Our Black Friday sale runs now through November 29th. That means the last day of our sale is tomorrow. You can get a whole year of the Washington Post plus that ad-free audio for just 99 cents every four weeks. Don't miss the chance to subscribe at our lowest price of the year. Just go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. And thanks. I'm Allison Michaels. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, 
there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.